Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome, everybody, to this edition of the World Soccer Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. Karta Krishnayer is back on the show this week. Uh, we're going to be looking forward to the action in the Premier League this weekend, the 30th round of the season. But before then, we're going to be talking about UEFA Champions League, Europa League, some of the news around the Premier League, as well as the one FA Cup replay that happened this week. Kartik, let's jump in with the most recent Champions League result that happened to be the one involving a Premier League team. Chelsea, another 2-1 loss to Paris Saint-Germain. Both legs of this round of 16 tie end up going 2-1 to PSG. Chelsea's out of Europe, 4-2 on aggregate. Thoughts? Second consecutive year they lose to PSG at this stage, and they're out. Uh, This time it was a a difficult ask for them. PSG, someone was going to end up PSG was going to finish second in their group because of the way things, uh, the new seeding worked, and Real Madrid was uh, did not win their league, so they were not in pot A, and PSG ended up being grouped with Real Madrid. So someone was going to face PSG because they were likely going to finish second in their group, some group winner, and unfortunately for Chelsea, that ended up being them. That's very unlucky, unfortunate, based on how they performed in Europe in, in the Champions League, but maybe... A fair reflection, uh, maybe some sort of karma for how they performed in other competitions, right? Mm-hmm. That they, uh, they, they're they out at this stage. But uh, I thought they played pretty well at times in this tie, uh, actually over the two legs, and that uh, they pressed high. Uh, I thought that they were able to get the ball into wide areas uh, more easily than uh, it seems like they've been able to during the course of the Premier League season. Uh, Costa... Uh, has been pretty good since he became manager, and, and he's uh, has, was good again today. He got that goal, and I, and I think uh, they look um, they look in the Premier League a more secure team when uh, Mikel plays in central midfield. However, against the likes of PSG, there's no team in the Premier League as good as PSG. They don't look uh, they, they they look out of sorts, and Mikel looks like he's he's off the pace. And not, and not just off the pace. The thing that Mikel was always able to do previous, I, I think we've talked about this for years on the show, Richard, is, is read the game uh, well in front of him. And, and uh, he still does that very well at the Premier League level, but at this uh, Champions League level, or no, I shouldn't say Champions League level. I think he did, he'll do okay against most Champions League sides, but against PSG, uh, he just wasn't uh, quite as effective. So uh, those would be my takeaways. I, I thought that uh, not having JT over these two legs hurt them. Uh, although, uh, Chelsea didn't play badly, and they were um, they were unlucky again with who they drew. I agree with you that Chelsea didn't play badly, but I want to put that to the side for a second because I think there is another side of that coin, too, regarding PSG and how we look at their prospects in this competition going forward. But with Chelsea, you mentioned John Terry being out watching from the stands today. 
I thought today was an obvious example of where they missed him. I think both of the goals were a bit of defensive disorganization. We saw replays of Gary Cahill really indecisive on that first goal. Uh, let let Zlatan Ibrahimovic stay on side. Didn't follow Zlatan Ibrahimovic or do much to defend that cross that Adrian Rabiot ended up running onto. And then the second goal, it was just a reminder. Um, Aspilicueta a little bit out of position. The defense not reacting well. It's a reminder that three people in that back line aren't playing positions that they have played throughout most of the year. Uh, Aspilicueta usually on the left back was on the right. Bob, uh, we had Kennedy at left back. Branislav Ivanovic, I almost called him Ibrahimovic, Uh, he's moved back to the middle. They're all capable players, and they've done well enough in the Premier League, but when you have somebody like um, Angel Di Maria that they have to react to, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, the speed of Lucas Mora, obviously uh, they broke down. It was a tie that they weren't expected to win at all, and I think to come this close says something about the improvement that they've had. But Kartik, I choose to focus a little bit more on PSG. Obviously, the mandate for that team at this point, having dominated France for a while now, is to make more progress in Champions League. Uh, To me, they just look like a team that isn't used to playing top competition you can see that the way that they move and their rotations when they're passing that and the skill when they're moving the ball and building play that they're obviously a very talented team but they just aren't operating on the same level that we see the truly elites of Europe do they aren't operating with the same speed they aren't performing things as efficiently they really have the talent to have made this more of a 6-2 on aggregate rather than 4-2. Uh, they have the talent to treat Chelsea the same way Barcelona's treating Arsenal right now. And I just don't see it. I think they're kind of in the same group as Real Madrid where they're, they're not performing up to their talent level. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that and want to ask, and maybe you have an answer for this because I don't have an explanation for why has this been the case now for a three or four successives in Europe where PSG on paper and it's not just net spend because the net spend for Manchester City is really impressive and the net spend for Chelsea is really impressive, but it's the specific players PSG has been able to buy, the quality of those players, the class of those players, and their pedigree in European football in particular. Uh, Manchester City has bought a lot of players that didn't weren't very accomplished in European football, and, and that shows when they go into Europe. But why is it that PSG, it seems, they, they're, they're, they're always good enough to, to roll over those second tier of teams in Europe, but when they come up against better opposition in Europe, they, they, they get exposed and there hasn't been any kind of tweak or change to the side that has uh, accounted for that reality and, and changed it. I, I was thinking about the same thing throughout the day today after being underwhelmed by PSG, and I kept thinking back to the one time that they really almost made a splash when they almost knocked Barcelona out. It was under Ancelotti. It was the year that David Beckham was actually there, too, and Ancelotti was actually playing him in Champions League. And I wonder if that lack of experience, that lack of person that's in the team that knows what it takes to win these games, that knows the intensity level that his teammates have to get to, if that's what they're lacking. Because when you look at this team... The only player that has really been on teams that have been wildly successful in Europe is Maxwell, their left back who was with Barcelona for a while. You can make the same argument for David Luiz, too, who had success on Chelsea's teams. But we know Zlatan Ibrahimovic has won everything you possibly could at the league level and hasn't really made it to the pinnacle in Champions League. You look at other players like Verratti's really only ever played for PSG at this level. Uh, Same thing with Matuidi. You go in throughout the whole team. Uh, Di Maria is the other example actually of one player that has uh, a comp one Champions League and it just looks like to me if they had 
a, a better leadership presence of somebody that has gone there. Maybe, maybe I'm actually forgetting like Tiago Mota too, who was on the inter team that, um, won Champions League. It just seems like they're lacking that consolidating presence that David Beckham brought them that one year. It's a small sample size because David Beckham was only there for half a year, Kartik, but it just seems like they just don't have the experience or the perspective to raise their level. And that's why I really still fear for them if they draw Bayern or Barcelona or even Atletico Madrid. I don't think they have the team right now that can get past even at, an Atletico. Yeah, they won't get past Atleti. I, and I'm not sure they have the, um, you know, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm not even sure that they have the, uh, the real, um, uh, the, the real match changers with the exception of, uh, uh, Zlatan, uh, going forward, uh, to, 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 to win at this level because it seems like Angel Di Maria has not been that guy in Europe, uh, if, at least since leaving Real Madrid. And he wasn't for, well, Manchester United was out of Europe last year, but then he hasn't been this season for, uh, for PSG. And, and, and I just, uh, I get the sense that there's something, something not not right there and that they're just going to perennially be this team that that crashes out in the quarterfinals so if they could get to the semifinals that would be some progress right mm-hmm. uh, let's see let's see if uh if that happens I, i'm not confident based on what we saw over the, these two legs or even what we saw in the group stage because they look pretty ordinary in the two games against real madrid and um Real Madrid is not great shakes this season. Yeah. They're not going to win Europe either. So they could very well be out in, in the next round as well. Yeah, Real Madrid also, that was during the Rafa Benitez time. So they were also looking pretty ordinary there. Neither team were able to generate much an attack over those two legs. A lot will come down to the draw, though, because this week, Benfica and then for the first time, first time Wolfsburg made it to the uh, quarterfinals. They're going to be two teams that teams are going to hope to be drawn against in the next round. We have four more teams next week that are going to um, claim their place in the quarterfinals. One other quarterfinal place that was claimed this week was Real Madrid 4-0 over a Roma team that has been playing better lately. Uh, people that follow Serie A saw what they did to Fiorentina here recently. And during the first 45 minutes of the game on Tuesday, they were creating the better chances against Real Madrid. Second half, though, Real Madrid did break through and pull away in this one. Real Madrid just hasn't played very well under Zinedine Zidane yet, Kartik. They had a 7-1 win this victory uh, this weekend over Celta Vigo. Uh, very lopsided performance. They came on a lot at the end in that one. I, I just don't see any evidence since Zinedine Zidane has replaced Rafa Benitez that this team is capable of competing with Bayern, Barcelona, or Atletico. No, they're not. I, I, they're, 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 they're at best the fourth best team in Europe. Uh, maybe worse. I mean, they're, yeah, they're, they're, I'm, they're for- I'm probably discounting Juventus here. Right. Juventus, I think it's better than them. And, and they're fortunate that Spurs are in the uh, other, other tournaments. So that Spurs finished fifth in the Premier League last season, because I think Spurs are probably better than them as well, honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, they're probably the fifth or sixth best team in Europe right now. And Leicester, who of course is not in any, uh, European competition. Dortmund is in the other, uh, other competition uh, along with Spurs. They're probably better than Real Madrid right now. So yeah, actually now that, now that we're talking about this, Real Madrid is down the list. Yeah. Uh, some of those teams aren't in Champions League, right? So, uh, they uh, they have been wholly unconvincing to me, and I, I'm not impressed at all by them. This match against Roma, they defensively looked very poor. Uh, their central midfield wasn't getting uh, wasn't controlling the match the way they needed to. They've been um, they've been pedestrian to say the least, and and uh, we, we we already know what Ronaldo thinks of his teammates. He said basically, <laughs> uh, what 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 was it uh, other than Marcelo and uh, and Bale and uh, who and uh, Benzema. Uh, and, and of course himself, 
the rest of the teams are just not up to the standard. Well, unfortunately, while he should not have made that comment, there, there seems to be some truth to it. Yeah, I, I watch Hamas uh, Rodriguez, and I, I just don't know what what's happened to this player. Uh, yeah. If uh, go, go ahead. No, Hamas is somebody that people are asking questions about. Isco is somebody people are asking questions about. I think people are now saying that Sergio Ramos came back way too quickly from his shoulder injury, injury to play in the first Clasico of the season, and he's never really recovered. Uh, you didn't mention Kaylor Navas. I think everybody acknowledges at this point that he's been one of the best goalkeepers yeah, right. in Europe. But I, a lot of focus is now on players like Tony Kroos, who I wouldn't be surprised if this is Tony Kroos' last year at Real Madrid. He hasn't been there very long, was obviously very very hyped when he arrived from Bayern Munich and coming off that World Cup victory, but he seems to be a little bit lost, and yesterday he was completely lost, a non-factor. You saw somebody like Casemiro winning the ball in midfield. You saw even Luka Modric playing uh, his typical Luka Modric game, quick, quickly playing the ball, providing a good focal point in midfield, and Tony Kroos just seems to be lost between, between those two worlds. Uh, I, I kind of wonder why he even still starts, but at the same time, somebody like a Kovacic even up for this type of occasion to be for Zidane to pick him. I don't know. Real Madrid seem to have so many questions and a like you were pointing out, defensively if they they're having to rely on Kaylor Navas that much, they're eventually gonna run into teams that aren't relying on Edin Zeko and Mohamed Salah to put away goals. Uh, they're gonna need a good draw in the next round. And I imagine Kartik as a Manchester City fan, you're not gonna be too upset if they do draw Real Madrid. No, in fact I think it'd probably be a good draw and it would be uh a rare opportunity for Manchester City or any English club, for that matter, to defeat Real Madrid in, in the knockout stages of uh, the Champions League. So it might be a very, very good thing. It might be a very good thing for England's coefficient mm-hmm. to get that draw. A Manchester City will probably win at least one of the two legs. So even if they lose, the coefficient is also dependent on on specific results. So that uh, let's say they win at the Etihad 2-1 and then lose 3-1 at the Bernabeu. They, they still get some points for England's coefficient. Uh, England's coefficient is really um, at risk, as we've talked yeah. about. Uh, the loss of Roma, Roma going out is, is helpful. Uh, obviously, the defeats of uh, Italian teams in Europa League has been helpful. But uh, I think it's still important Manchester City get to, to the final eight and probably important that if, um, well, one, someone someone of Liverpool, well, we'll, we'll talk about that. Yeah, but um, as you're kind of mentioning, it's looking really dire for England as far as maintaining that fourth Champions League spot. The the biggest problem for that is that based on UEFA's five-year rotating scoring, the year that's about to drop off the books for England, for going to drop off the books for all leagues, but England's score in that that uh that season five years ago is really high and once that score in Italy's score drops off the advantage that England has over Italy disappears so if the trend- right that was uh, that was a uh, season where Spurs Arsenal I think uh, actually all four no no Arsenal lost in the round of 16 but Spurs uh, uh Chelsea and Manchester United all made the quarterfinals of the champions right. so you're lo- you're losing that and replacing it with the numbers that were English teams were eliminated at the group stage or um, or even uh, eliminated at the round of 16 and were completely out of uh, UEFA competition. So that's that's basically what's happening. And the big problem is that England's not really going back to the times when they were getting three teams in the quarterfinals consistently. They will probably have one this this season, Manchester City, who, who stands a decent chance of making the semifinals if they get a, if they get a good draw. 
In Europa League, they will have one or two teams in the next round of the of Europa League. One of Manchester United and Liverpool are going to bow out. Spurs are probably an underdog to Dortmund, but they could win that one. Uh, and Italy is only doing slightly worse this year. Lazio is still alive and Europa League could advance there. Juventus could advance in Champions League, probably won't. Uh, regardless, England is kind of performing on Italy's level right now as far as the UEFA coefficient is concerned. There isn't really an indication that they're turning it around and making up ground on Germany. So, it's while it's unclear that England is definitely going to give that fourth Champions League spot over to Italy, it's kind of a toss-up going into next year, and it's something that we'll be talking about even more. Kartik, we mentioned Europa League. Let's talk about that now. Uh, rightfully, a lot of people are turning their attention to Liverpool versus Manchester United. The first time uh, the two most historic clubs in England, uh, the biggest rivalry in English football, is going to take place in European competition. Jurgen Klopp today, pre-match press conference, called it the mother of all games. Well, it's going to be two mothers of all games. Uh, matches taking place this week and next week. First one at Anfield on Thursday. Kartik, Manchester United won both games in league this season combined score four to one however this is Liverpool team that seems to be improving week by week under Jurgen Klopp so who do you give the advantage in this round of 32 tie uh, round of 16 tie in Europa League I think Liverpool but there's just been Louis Van Hall has a very good record obviously against Liverpool and against Manchester City since becoming the uh the Manchester United co- uh, manager. He's kind of reversed the, uh, the, the direction both those, uh, those rivalries were going. I mean, under the, the end of the Fergie era, the beginning of the Moyes era, they were losing a lot of games to, uh, both those teams. And in fact, Moyes, uh, saw both, uh, City and Liverpool do the double against them two seasons ago. So I, um, I think Liverpool are the favorites. I think they're the better team, actually, uh, believe it or not. But it uh, seems to be, have been a, um, a bit of a revival, mini revival in, in Manchester United before the, um, the the sending off of Juan Mata at the weekend and, and that loss to to West Brom. That having been said, uh, it, it should be re- remembered that uh, that uh, West Brom seems to be a bogey town for Manchester United. They, they've been losing to West Brom, dropping points to them every season. Going back to when Fergie was still the manager uh, and Steve Clark was managing West Brom, so perhaps that result is is an outlier for for when you consider the recent form of Manchester United. Uh, still, I like Liverpool. I think that they'll get they'll get a big uh, uh, response from the Anfield crowd. Uh, it, it seems to mean more to them. Uh, this this competition it, this competition is uh, maybe in some ways in, in United's uh, the, the minds of United fans beneath them. Uh, that ha- that this this all having been stated, there's nothing to get you into a competition if you're a Manchester United fan more than drawing Liverpool. So maybe Old Trafford's going to be rocking. But I give I give the slight advantage. You outlined the tension that goes on in my mind regarding this too. On paper, I think Liverpool's a better team. I think they have Jurgen Klopp who is making them even better. I like the way they're playing right now. So in terms on form, I like them even more. All right, that's great. I can have my own opinions about these things. I can't ignore the facts. And the facts are when these two teams have met recently, and not just under Van Hall or Klopp, uh, going back the last few years. As you noted, Manchester United has proven to be the better team. So at what point do I think that recency, the last two or three weeks even, because it wasn't like, it wasn't so long ago that these teams met. What has happened in the last month or so that makes me believe that Liverpool has overcome all the advantages that Manchester United showed in these previous meetings? And I can point to a lot of things like health or them betting in under Klopp, Klopp figuring out how to rotate his players or developing preferences in his players that then close that gap between them and Manchester United. 
Ultimately, those are all still theories, though, right? I have to see it in practice against Manchester United. So there's no money you could get me to bet on this one. And in that way, I'm just going to sit back and relax when it uh, kickoff happens tomorrow at, uh, well, just after noon my time, so 3 o'clock Eastern time. The bigger game is going to happen before then, the first kickoff time tomorrow, 1 o'clock Eastern, 10 o'clock Pacific time. And just to highlight how big it is, Dortmund hosting Tottenham, let me read off the other ties that are happening in the round of 16 in Europa League. Of course, there's Liverpool, Manchester United, but there's also Sparta Prague versus Lazio. Athletic Club is hosting Valencia in an all-Spanish battle. Villarreal is hosting Bayer Leverkusen. Fenerbahce is taking on Braga from Portugal. Basel is hosting Sevilla, and Shakhtar Donetsk is hosting Anderlecht. Kartik, I think for most listeners, they probably heard those six ties that I mentioned, and it just kind of washed over their face, or right. washed, washed through their ears, which is understandable because none of those ties have anywhere close to the prestige or the significance given the talent of these two sides as Dortmund versus Tottenham. This is a finals-caliber matchup in Europa League that is happening in the round of 16. Yeah, they're the two best teams that are not playing in Champions League this season. They're the two best teams in this competition, and this is what happens in an open draw, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this was uh, something we had hoped to, uh, to to avoid, I guess, if you're if if you're taking it from the perspective of those two clubs. Uh, Spurs ha- have had a very difficult draw, having to play Fiorentina in the round of 32, which was no walk in the park. Although they made a, a pure like as such yeah. in the second leg, but. That was a very difficult draw compared to the draws that some of these other uh, big-name clubs got. And now they're getting Dortmund. You have to think if they get past Dortmund this Europa League and maybe do a League uh, league Cup double. I mean, that's uh, that's a possibility. And I think had, had Mauricio Pochettino not had Fiorentina in the last round, he wouldn't have tossed away the FA Cup the way he did in that in that tie with Crystal Palace. Uh, he, threw, he threw away the FA Cup knowing he had a second leg against Fiorentina. It would have been a second leg against, no, no offense to Manchester United fans, a second leg against Mitterland. He may have played his uh, full-strength side, or at least a, <laughs> a close-to-full-strength side against Crystal Palace in the FA Cup. It seems Palace can only win games in the FA Cup, especially when they're playing weakened sides. Uh, but this is going to be this is going to be something else. Uh, Dortmund's lack of depth has been somewhat exposed in the Bundesliga in the sense that they've had to scrape their way to results. They've had to get late goals. They've had to uh, 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 turn games uh, in the last 20 minutes uh, in order to get the full points. That having been said, they're five points behind Bayern Munich. Uh, they just coming off a nil-nil draw with them. Uh, they've shown no signs of letting up in, this, in, in terms of results they're getting. But their lack of depth, as I said, when they've had a couple of injuries, they've, uh, they, they, they've struggled in matches. So maybe Spurs can get at them or uh, hold them uh, scoreless in this match uh, at at, uh, at Dortmund. Uh, they've had, uh, obviously, a big week having played Bayern on, on Saturday, and now they're going to be playing Spurs on a Thursday. And that stadium is, is one of the uh, the loudest in Europe, one of the uh, biggest. I, I think it's the third biggest behind Real and uh, behind the Bernabeu and, and the Camp Nou. So uh, Spurs... Uh, might not have quite seen an atmosphere like this in the Premier League. There are there are small, intimate stadiums that are very loud and very uh, challenging when you go away from home in the uh, Premier League. But the bigger kind of cavernous stadiums like uh, Old Trafford and St. James Park in England and, and Stadium of Light, uh, Manchester uh, City and Manchester Stadium, they don't have the acoustics, the standing fans, the kind of uh, uh, issues that you see. Uh, at, uh, at at Dortmund. So this is going to be a challenge for the young Spurs team. Let's not forget how young this team is. And for many of these players, this is their first full-fledged 
European experience. So uh, it's going to be a tough one. And if they can get through tomorrow nil-nil or even maybe uh, there, there, there's a school of thought now that uh, uh, losing one nil uh, away isn't a bad result, uh, then you might uh, you might have a real good shot to advance. Hmm. You know, there are certain advantages that Tottenham does have here. You alluded to Borussia having some questions, Borussia Dortmund having some questions with their depth. Tottenham has a lot of good depth in their team, uh, with the possible exception of central defense. We see that they're rotating their fullbacks. They have five or six different players that can contribute at that line of attack behind Harry Kane. And even with Sun Hyun Min, they have somebody that can fill in at striker that while he doesn't in a lot of people's mind, fit the mold of a traditional striker. They've performed fine with him there. Uh, they go about four deep in central midfield. They have a lot of depth. Um, BVB has some good depth too. They have people like Gonzalo Castro and Nevin Subotic and Adrian Ramos and uh, these type of players. The, the problem is those players haven't necessarily performed on the same level that Spurs replacements have. I think the other thing that fits into Spurs kind of plus basket is the fact that they're playing Aston Villa on Sunday. So it's not as much of a juggling act as you would normally have when you're worried about that turnaround. If they want to play their first team on Thursday, they can and expect their second team to be able to win at Villa Park on Sunday. So the balancing act there is a little bit alleviated from Mauricio Pochettino. That having been said, Villa has taken points off of both Leicester and Manchester City at Villa Park this season. Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. I mean, any any game is dangerous if your players aren't going to perform right. So there's still there's still the act of getting your replacements focused on Villa and not taking them lightly. But if Prochettino can do that, I think it, he can be pretty confident in playing his second stringers or a number of his second stringers at Villa Park. Now, as far as Dortmund, the pluses for Dortmund are concerned, they're just a really good team, uh, and the performance this weekend in their classicer tells you that. They went toe-to-toe with Bayern Munich, Bayern being one of the two best teams in Europe. And while we've talked before on this show the fact that Bayern hasn't been that good in 2016, Bayern was pretty good this weekend. They created chances. They missed a couple of chances that they probably should have converted and gotten the win. They controlled possession. They accounted for their lack of depth at the back at this point. Their central defense is really depleted. They performed really well. But another thing that fits into kind of Dortmund's back here is how they set up against Bayern. They played on the back foot like you have to do against Bayern. They seeded possession, created their chances on the counterattack. And that's something that's going to come in handy against Spurs. Playing on the back foot, letting Spurs have the ball, transitioning quickly so you're not going to be exposed to that Spurs pressure. I think bottom line in this one, Kartik, Dortmund is just an elite team in Europe right now, to my mind. To be able to stay within five points of Bayern in Germany tells you how good they are. I don't know how many teams really could stay within Bayern at the rate that Bayern takes points in Germany, but Borussia Dortmund has. I just think that this is kind of a step too far for this Tottenham team that maybe this weekend against Arsenal kind of show that they lack a little bit of experience at these levels at this point. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think the advantage is with Dortmund because they're a more experienced team. They've got guys, they've got some guys on that team that played in the Champions League final, let's keep in mind. But they've also got some some other players uh, in Mkhitaryan and Abu Mayang who've come to the side since then, but have just they've played a lot in Europe. They've played a lot of games in European football. They've been successful in cup competitions. So that's a that's a major advantage. Spurs have not won a trophy since uh, since the 2008 League Cup. And there's um, I think there's a sense though now that they're ready to win trophies. Not just ready to to, to win the league, but they're ready to win trophies. So. It's a young team. It might be a bridge too far this season, mm-hmm. especially having gotten this draw. I mean, the hope would have been that someone else drew Dortmund and and they and they got upset somehow before the final. 
uh, and Spurs could, could could face someone else in the final. But this this was look. I mean, you hear this in in, in different cup competitions and tournaments and in other sports that oh well, this is really the final, uh, this semifinal or quarterfinal, whatever it is. But this it. I think Richard, we're, we're, it's not a fait accompli, but the winner of this tie, these two legs, is the overwhelming favorite to win this competition. So, mm. uh, if you just look at who else is in this competition, I know Sevilla is still around, and they'll be either Manchester United or Liverpool. But I think they, these two teams are so clearly better. They're Champions League level teams, or teams that are as good as Real Madrid and PSG. The two teams we've, we've discussed earlier in the show. Uh, yeah, and we're talking about those teams as being outsiders, potentially just just in the next tier of teams that could win the Champions League. So that tells you how good these teams are. Uh, it, it, it's going to be very, uh, very telling because the other consideration, if Dortmund does win 3-0 tomorrow, which I don't think they will, but let's say that happens and Spurs don't give up many goals. What do you do going into that second leg if you're Pochettino? And maybe it, again, it helps that they've got Villa at the weekend and, and maybe he can rotate a little bit. But that's a, that's a consideration. They're mm-hmm. in a title race. And they can't drop many more points because uh, they're five points behind uh, Leicester. And while we know Leicester will drop points, there's not much margin for error left for Spurs. And there's no margin for error left for for either Manchester City or Arsenal. So uh, I'm I'm sure Pochettino is aware of this. The one thing that came to mind as you were talking is the um, players like Marco Royce and uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. These are players that just the style of them, the speed at which they play, the uh, we don't see very many players like that in England. I, I wonder how much trouble that is going to give that Spurs central defense. As is, we, you were talking about, we, we mentioned Spurs' lack of experience. If they can just stay close to BBB in this one, I think it's games like this. It's the game that they played this weekend against Arsenal. It's the matches that are going to really stress them th- at the end of this season that are really going to make, make them the favorite for next season. I don't know that I would bet on Spurs winning the title this year. I don't know if I would bet on them getting past Dortmund or winning the Europa League this year. But the lessons that that team learns over the next two months, I think are going to solidify their case to be the favorite in England next year. Because right now we're saying, well, these things are happening because they haven't been in this situation before. Those questions are going to be answered by the time round one kicks off next year in the Premier League. Let's dovetail our talk about Dortmund here, Kartik, with some news. I'm going to go through about four or five different news elements from around the Premier League. And uh, one player that has been a mainstay for Dortmund for a while now, although the last two or three years before this one have been injury riddled, is their central midfielder, Ilkay Gundogan. Uh, Gundogan has been linked with a number of clubs in England over the last couple of years, probably most prominently with Manchester United last year. But this rumor now links him to another Manchester club, Manchester City. It's been reported in a number of different tabloids about talks for him moving to city this summer 23 million pounds is the price that i saw the big link up here kartik that we have to talk about whenever we're going to talk about a player coming from germany to city this summer is pep guardiola what they've seen from these what they've he's seen of these players over the last few years with Bayern. Uh, Gundogan seems to be a perfect fit for Manchester City, and if he's going to be one of the first moves that Manchester City is going to try to solidify come June, it really does tell you where Pep Guardiola sees the current squad as being weak. Yeah, in central midfield, I think Manchester City are very weak, and we've seen that. And it's been exacerbated by the injury to Fabian Delph, right? the injuries to Fabian Delph, the mm. consistent injuries. So I think this is a logical signing if, if it happens. I think everybody wants Guman, so... We'll, we'll see if this deal is actually closed. I mean, right now Manchester City is being linked with every player on the planet. So I, I don't know what to believe and what not to believe. Uh, I, uh-huh. I think one thing that is apparent is that 
one thing that I, I would put a lot of stock in is that John Stones, and we've talked about this before, John Stones is a transfer target. That's pretty yeah. clear. And, and he fits, he's English and he fits the description of the kind of player Pep would want. And a real need position, unless, uh, you think Odomendi or Mangala are going to turn it around. But maybe, uh, uh, maybe Pep has already, uh, made his judgment on, on Odomendi, uh, seeing him uh, play, uh, on film and, and then Mangala, who hasn't got to play very much this season. Maybe he, uh, uh, he, he'll make a quick decision on him too when he sees him uh, ne- uh, next season or in training. So uh, I- I'm not sure though about all these other rules. I mean, I've seen uh, any number of players linked with Manchester City in the, in the last uh, three weeks, and most of them I just kind of take with a grain of salt until we get to the end of the season. I, I, I also have to say this is a a, a little bit of a, a sport for the English press because right, they, the British press they want to. They want to be able to stir up transfer rumors right in the middle of, of, of the season and write about this in February and March. But I, I'm not quite sure it's very productive for, for Manchester City. Of course, Manchester City made the decision to replace Manuel Pellegrini with uh, Pep Guardiola, even though I, I think based on any metric you, uh, you, you, you threw out there about Pellegrini's tenure, it's, it's not a, uh, a, a fair decision. So maybe this is, the, uh, um, this is what happens. Yeah, maybe this is the coverage that they brought upon themselves. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> I think I'm going to have to get used to pr- pronouncing Ilkay Gundogan's name correctly if he really does end up coming to the Premier League. Uh, but the bigger story in the papers this week, Kartik, has centered around Newcastle United. I think a lot of people expected after this weekend's loss, uh, Newcastle losing 3-1 at home to Bournemouth, that Steve McLaren would no longer be the manager at Newcastle at this point. Well, We've reached Wednesday. He's still in a job, but we're hearing a couple of names linked as possible replacements, and we're hearing that deliberations are still ongoing at St. James's Park. One name, David Moyes, was more prominently mentioned on Monday. Right now, it looks like a lot of attention centers on Rafa Benitez potentially returning to England. Kartik, what's your reaction to Benitez potentially taking a, what would be his third job in English football? I don't understand what Rafa Benitez is thinking. Very accomplished manager man who manages big clubs. Uh, Real Madrid was the wrong job for him. I know he, it's a job he always coveted, but it was the wrong job for him at the wrong time. I don't necessarily hold the failure there against him. I, I'm not quite sure why he'd be interested in a Newcastle job. I know he's desperate to get into England, but everybody is going to have a certain degree money, a certain ability to compete. And once Rafa Benitez puts the word out there, he wants to get back to England, which I think we all know. He lives in England, and he has a house in, in Chester. I, I think that there will be better jobs for him. Now, hmm. on paper, the Newcastle job is this great job with robust support. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you could argue that Newcastle is a bigger job than Napoli's. Well, you could, but it, I mean, it's just the, 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 the historic trajectory of the club now is that it, it's a club of underachievement for the last 20 years. And it's not a club of underachievement for four years or three years. or It's a club of underachievement for 20 years. It's a club that's consistently punching below their weight. Uh, consistently is, it has among the highest wage bills in the league. Now, nowadays, it's like seventh or eighth because of all, all, all the spending, the, uh, the ownership changes in Chelsea, Manchester City, all of that over the course of the last 10 years. But uh, previously, top wage bill, still top half wage bill. They never uh, even hit their, their uh, what, what should be their, their natural uh, position based on the spending and the type of players they attract to the club, let alone except so. I, I don't know. I don't know why Rafa Benitez would want to take this this particular job. It's it's a dangerous uh, dangerous job to be in. It's a job that uh, uh, can, can, can really kill managers and, and, and managerial reputations. It is a it is a club that has killed the reputations of, of many players. 
And we've seen time and again players uh, uh, play at a high level at their previous clubs, go to Newcastle, perform very poorly, then move on to another club and perform much better. So it's just it's just this trap job. Uh, but there's still an impression that Newcastle's a big club, right? So, uh, and Rafa probably has that impression. Now, let's put it this way. If Rafa can win there, uh, he's going to be a, a legend. Uh, they haven't had a, a manager that's been successful since Sir Bobby Robson at that club. Mm. But he's got to get them out of relegation first. And, and they're already, unless they catch Sunderland, they're, they're uh, already cut adrift from... Uh, from 16th and 15th and, and from Swansea and, and Crystal Palace and, and, and Bournemouth. And they're not going to catch any of those. Yeah. It's very unlikely to catch any. West Brom now is on a run. So I, the timing is very odd. I, I like Rafa. I mean, if I'm Newcastle, yeah, I try and make the appointment. I'm just arguing with Benitez's perspective. I, I think it would be a mistake. Uh, but uh, from Newcastle's perspective, yeah, if Rafa wants to manage uh, Newcastle, I, I sack uh, McLaren immediately and bring him in. Yeah. I guess I'm as confused as you are. I don't see why Rafa is moving now, given how much uncertainty there is around the Newcastle, not, yeah, Newcastle job. We just don't know if they're going to be a Premier League team in a few months. And so I don't know why he feels like he needs to move now to, to act on his urge to get back to England, where if he just waited until the summer, Odds are three or four jobs are going to open up, and even if they don't open up this summer, they're likely to open up in the first couple months of the new season. So I don't see, really see the risk-reward for him, except for maybe there really is a reverence of Newcastle that he has from all of his years in England, knowing that it is a big club. It is a res uh, club that has good resources there, at least relative to other clubs. Uh, obviously, the support there is huge, and... um yeah, I think that maybe that's it, and maybe he just values those things a little bit more than maybe you and I do. As is, it's still pretty confusing. Let's go ahead and stick in the Northeast, Kartik, and let's talk about what's going on at Sunderland. Uh, the fallout from the Adam Johnson story continues, and it claimed uh, their CEO today, Margaret Byrne, just days after, or I guess it's been about a week after it, we found out that Adam Johnson had told her uh, the truth of the crimes that he has since been convicted of. Uh, Margaret Byrne resigned today as Sunderland's CEO. Uh, she had been out of the country, uh, I believe in Portugal for the last few days uh, as people had started to seek her out for comment on these things. Before she can, before she likes to comment, she likes to leave her job. Kartik, I guess this was the only event, uh, this was the only outcome possible once we learned that, uh, Byrne, Byrne knew about Johnson and elected to let him stay with the club for as long as he did. It, it, there's just no explanation for 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 this uh, decision by Margaret Byrne and by Sunderland to to allow Adam Johnson to continue to play for 11 months. By the way, yeah, uh, they were in a relegation fight last season. We know that, and maybe his his playing helped secure Premier League uh, football for them for another season and all the riches that come with it. If I were one of those teams that got relegated last season, I'd be very uh, very unhappy about this. To be honest with you, I mean, I think this is a uh, really shows kind of the, the ethics that are permeating in, in this sport and in this league. It's a, it's a shocking, I, I, there's just, there's just no justification. It's just an absolutely shocking and disgusting story, the whole thing. And Adam, Adam Johnson has been convicted. He'll never play professional football again. He's going to jail. And uh, that's, uh, and Sunderland uh, sat on it for 11 months. I mean, they backed the player publicly when these allegations made. Remember they suspended him for a few, for a few days, I believe. And then reinstated him. Yeah, and, and and he was playing right away again. Yeah, so, Adv advocate brought him back in once he got the job. Yep, right. 
So it was, um, it's an absolutely shocking story, a sickening story, quite frankly. And, um, it's disappointing. I, I don't know that Margaret Byrne is employable in this sport again. Although the attitudes of sport about these things are winning is more important and she might be lauded in some quarters for, for, uh, doing what was best for, 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 for the club. So they, uh, for the club's bottom line. So they did in the Premier League. Mm-hmm. Uh, but from a human standpoint, it's, uh, it's absolutely unjustifiable. Uh, moving to a little bit lighter, more pleasant news. Uh, Emmanuel Abue, a former longtime Arsenal defender slash midfielder, has signed with Sunderland. He's been out of the game for a while. I believe his last stop was in Turkey, where he was after he had played with, uh, with Arsenal. He's back in the Premier League, and it seems like Sam Allardyce Kartik is turning to him to solve what Allardyce seems to think is a problem at right back. Yeah, that's unfortunate for those of us here in the United States. We, we've liked that DeAndre Yedlin's gotten a good run of games. He's had some, some nice performances. Emmanuel Bowie, he's been out of football now for a while. Uh, last played for Galatasaray a year ago, I think, or maybe a, a year and a half ago. So he is not necessarily fresh, but he's been training with them. And now uh, has been offered a contract, and, and you have to assume he's going to probably move uh, move into the team pretty quickly. Uh, an experienced player, a decent player. I mean, he never overwhelmed me when he was with Arsenal, but he was a he was a serviceable squad player for a club at that level when he was there. Uh, so maybe he helps uh, Sunderland in this this relegation battle they're in, and and maybe they they, they really need to uh, buck up and 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 uh, get some ideas because I. Uh, Thought now for the last two, as we've seen Sunderland signings, Kaziri, uh, Kone, uh, uh, Indoy, uh, Kirchhoff, all these guys that, that Allardyce bought this, this January from the continent, really uh, bet into England that they would be fine. But if Rafa Benitez does take the Newcastle job, again, the, what I was saying earlier was why he shouldn't as Rafa Benitez. From Newcastle's perspective, it's a no-brainer. And if they do get him to take the job, you kind of have to expect... Uh, Newcastle to go on a bit of a run, right? I mean, they do have the parts there. And Benitez is a very tactical manager. I mean, he has a reputation as a defensive manager. But Newcastle's been leaking goals. That's really their issue. So mm-hmm. I think you bring a Benitez in, you're probably going to get results. Uh, enough results to stay up. Uh, or enough results to catch Sunderland, unless Sunderland does something to uh, to pull away from from Newcastle and, and obviously the Derby is going to be we'll talk about that a week from now. Hmm. Sunderland is currently one point up on Newcastle. Newcastle does have a match in hand so it's not too difficult to imagine somebody coming in with the Magpie stemming the tide so to speak. They have lost three in a row and just using the schedule alone the fixture list alone to make up that gap. As you mentioned the, the Derby coming up is huge. Sunderland has dar- dominated that Derby of late but with that match in hand Newcastle probably doesn't necessarily need to win that one in order to have a path to stay up. Maybe they can draw it or maybe they can even lose it. Who knows? Uh, there is still a bit of time remaining in the season and Sunderland, Norwich, and Newcastle are all within one point of each other fighting for 17th place. Uh, one other piece of news before we get back to talking about games. News now that the Premier League plans on, ta- on capping ticket prices next year for away fans at £30 per ticket. Kartik, uh, good news, I assume. Very good news. I, I was pleasantly surprised by this and think that this is something that uh, U.S. leagues should consider because the, the cost of travel uh, for, for fans, away fans in the U.S. is very prohibitive. So uh, ticket prices probably should be capped uh, with, that in consider, uh, with that in consideration. Hmm. Uh, let's get back to the games, Kartik. Uh, one game that we men- didn't talk about from midweek is 
Arsenal 4-0 victory over Hull in their fifth round replay FA Cup against Hull City. Didn't talk about it because there isn't really much to say here. Braces for Olivier Giroud and Theo Walcott helped Arsenal overcome an initial 30 minutes where they failed to get a shot on target. The bigger news around this is what happened off the field. Uh, before this game, reports of a crisis meeting amongst players. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. I, I assume the crisis is how Arsenal has performed in the Premier League over the last month. And then fan signs within uh, KC Stadium basically asking Arsene Wenger to to walk away from his job, thanking him for his service to the club, but then to walk away based on Arsenal's inability to uh, win a title this year, I guess they they assume. Arsenal, eight points back now with, uh, with nine matches to play. Um... I, I I don't know where to start with this Kartik, but it is all kind of endemic of what's happened to Arsenal's title hopes over the last month or so. Clearly, they can still scratch their way back into the title race, but more and more, this is the kind of, uh, I guess, defeatism fits here, although it seems like a strong word, but it is the kind of defeatism that we're used to seeing hover over Arsenal every uh, late winter and spring. Right, so they have one win in their last uh, account, f- uh, four or five uh, seven or eight, it's either seven or eight Premier League games have one win. And that one win was obviously against the league leaders, Leicester City, but they were not going to win that game without a sending off and, and that late, uh, late, late show from, from Danny Welbeck. In fact, uh, I think most people are in agreement they wouldn't have drawn the game if it hadn't been for the sending off. Leicester were going to win and would be even further ahead of them. They're eight points ahead of them as it is. So mm. Mike, uh, it would be 14 ahead of them then, right? So, um, yeah, I, I guess Arsenal fans have gotten to that point once again this season. And this season is different than the other seasons because this season was a season of missed opportunities. Uh, they're chasing Leicester City and Spurs, not Chelsea and Manchester City or Manchester United and Liverpool. It, it's it's a completely different uh, my, uh, mentality. And they're going to finish third or fourth again in this race. So they have every right to be angry. Uh, Arsene Wenger has sat on a lot of money. He has not strictly bought, it seems, to reinforce the side. Uh, the the needs he's filled have been um have been uh, I guess they've been useful uh, with P- Petr Cech and and uh, uh, a couple of the other players they've bought in the last few seasons but uh, they haven't been spectacular and you have to say maybe it's a byproduct of uh, of Arsenal and Alexis Sanchez was very good for the first four or five months last season but tailed off this is a player that was out of uh, unplayable at Udinese in Serie A was nearly unplayable at Barcelona, and who was very pedestrian at times with Arsenal. Now, I have to, I have to blame manage, management and coaching. Uh, I, we see the same thing with, with other guys at Arsenal, that they're unplayable one day, and, and they're, uh, uh, or something similar, I should say. Uh, they're unplayable one day, and they're, they're uh, really uh, not, not very good the next. Uh, Theo Walcott comes to mind, right? He's, he's mm-hmm. a classic example of that. And uh, I don't know. It's, it's probably time if... Uh, they don't if they don't rally and win this title or, or win a third straight FA Cup and winning the third straight FA Cup would be a, a historic achievement uh, in terms of uh, uh, kind of, uh, no, nobody has won three three FA Cups in a row since I believe since the 1800s. That, ha- that, that that having been said, look, this is an era where most of the top teams are not taking the FA Cup very seriously, and uh, the teams that are fighting relegation don't take it seriously at all, and the top teams in the Championship aren't taking it seriously because they're trying to push. Uh, up the table to uh, to get promotion. For Hull, this game was an annoyance. They are uh, in a dogfight for automatic promotion. They've fallen behind Burnley. They've fallen behind Middlesbrough. Uh, they don't want to be in that playoff. Steve Bruce wants to get automatic promotion. This additional game was uh, uh, not something they needed. It, 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 and uh, 
especially when you consider you think the the, the uh, fixture schedule is congested in the Premier League, you should check out what the top teams in the Championship, especially if they have to if they advance in cup competition, what they face. So uh, they this is an era where uh, the FA Cup is uh, is is easier to win if you take it seriously. So Arsenal might win it again, and it is a historic achievement, but it's also not it's not equivalent to winning the FA Cup three times in a row in the 1980s or 1990s. It's just not. Mm. So the other thing that comes to mind to me is that it's not only the league where Arsenal appears to be losing ground. You mentioned the fact that they're in third place. They're going through the same things that they do every year. Only this time, it's not Chelsea and Manchester United in front of them. Chelsea and Manchester United have regressed. And perhaps it's to Arsenal's credit that they haven't regressed like those two teams in Liverpool have. But... This is a year where everything broke right, and Arsenal now is on pace for only 68 points this season. So that tells you a little bit about uh, their lack of progress. Maybe they haven't regressed like other teams have, but they're clearly not making progress either. Uh, they have made more progress in their FA Cup runs, but you added context to that. FA Cup is not being considered as prestigious as it was in the past, and there's even more emphasis placed on the League Cup now than there has been in the yeah. past. Um, but you look at what they've done in Europe, too. They've gotten some bad draws in the round of 16, but they've gotten bad draws in the round of 16 because they're failing to win their Champions League groups. They're not making it to Champions League semifinals and quarterfinals like they did before. Even making it to round of 16s now have been in doubt. They obviously had a very perilous six-game stretch in Champions League this year where they barely got out of their group. Um, deservedly got out of their group, but they made it very difficult on themselves. So Arsenal is losing ground in on all fronts except for the FA Cup. And if you're talking about the mandate of a club like Arsenal, that's not it. That's not it. That's not the mandate for a club like Manchester United, Liverpool, Chelsea, Tottenham. I mean, this is the reason why... Manchester United hasn't won the FA Cup since 2004. I I should point that out. I don't think anyone is really bothered by it (laughs) among United fans. Because they've won the league multiple times since then. They've won Europe. Uh, since then, they've won the League Cup multiple times since then. So there, there's not, no Manchester United just, fan right now that's saying, "Yeah, there's no Manchester United fan right now that's saying, well, at least we're still in the FA Cup." Right? Yeah, there's not none of them are saying that. So it, it, it's become a convenient fallback position for Wenger and Wenger's uh, supporters. This FA Cup run that they've been on, and they have they have uh, obviously been successful in the competition. But you know, Ferguson didn't win an FA Cup his last nine nine seasons as uh, Manchester United manager. Uh, but he won everything else. He won a trophy a year, basically, in, in, in more important competitions, or what had become more important competitions. I mean, at one time, the, the FA Cup was even or not, mm. uh, for our younger <laughs> listeners. But it's not that, that's certainly not the case anymore. I, I don't know uh, what the justification is to keep him on after this season, but I, I don't know that Ivan Gazidis or, and Stan Kroenke want to make a change, and they don't make a change. We're going to be looking at, at a missed opportunity for Arsenal and a team that goes into next season uh, with more question marks than they had coming into this season, and a league that is completely different because Spurs have overtaken them and have a young core and one of the uh, bright young managers in Europe, in, in Pochettino. Uh, Liverpool has hired Jurgen Klopp, and Manchester City has hired Pep Guardiola. So that, that's that's the world they enter next season if they don't win the title this season. Well, since we're talking about Arsenal, let's talk about this weekend's action. We have... Two competitions active. FA Cup quarterfinals are going to take place this weekend between Friday and Sunday. Arsenal is going to be hosting Watford in that competition. Uh, Kartik, Watford is a team that 
has slowed down a bit over the uh, 2016 since the calendar turn. Uh, Odin Ogalu and Troy Deeney haven't been scoring as many goals. Troy Deeney has been finding some goals, but Odin Ogalu has slowed down. It seems like teams are adjusting to them. At the same time, Arsenal's form has been so consistently mediocre that it wouldn't shock me to see that this one would have to go to a replay. No, it wouldn't shock me either, although I think... Uh... Arsenal seems to have an ability to to get through these sorts of ties in the FA Cup, but they can't beat teams like Watford or, or the, the equivalent teams of Watford in the Premier League when it matters. So <laughs> I think they probably get through it and they're on to the semifinal. Mm. Uh, the Arsenal-Watford game is a 9.30 a.m. Eastern time kickoff on Sunday. The game after that in the FA Cup, Manchester United hosting West Ham. This is a this is a great matchup. There's another great matchup on Saturday, but Manchester United versus West Ham. It's fifth versus sixth in the Premier League. Two of the teams that are t- fighting for fourth place. Uh, as kind of consistently... Um, inconsistent as Manchester United has been. I, I say inconsistent there, but I'm actually thinking disappointing compared to their expectations at the beginning of the year. West Ham is a team that we didn't think was going to be fighting for fourth place in the Premier League. In that way, they've been one of the biggest surprises of the season. It's a very interesting contrast that's going to take place at Old Trafford on Sunday. Yeah, I think uh, this is going to be a really good game. Uh, Manchester United has not uh, necessarily been solid at home. In, in many of these sorts of matches uh, earlier in the season, these two teams brought in, in the uh, Premier League, but West Ham were the better team. West Ham have a very good away record. Uh, this is going to be uh, good to see. Manchester United has not um, faced a, a Premier League club yet in this competition. So they've, they've gotten through by beating lower division opposition, uh, in, in sometimes struggling as they did in, in the third round. But now uh, they're going to be facing off with um, with, a team that is very, very strong, uh, can unlock defenses, and this this match could go either way. Working our way backwards from Saturday, uh, from Sunday to Saturday, another very important game, another seemingly very evenly matched game. Everton, I believe, is 11th in the Premier League. Chelsea is 10th. Uh, talent level wise, they're similar. I think you and I both think that Everton's a little bit more talented than Chelsea. It is at Goodison. Uh, this is an opportunity for Roberto Martinez to, uh, get his team to Wembley, which would help soothe fans that are increasingly disappointed by him. Uh, at the same time, there's a lot of risk here to Kartik because if Everton, based on, I mean, on the back of another disappointing loss where they, uh, gave up a two goal lead to West Ham last weekend, they still haven't hit the 40-point mark in league, remarkably. If they go out at home to a Chelsea team that is largely disappointed this year, that's just going to be another thing that is going to get a, a very disappointed and increasingly vocal fan base turned against Roberto Martinez. Yeah, and obviously there's new investment in the club, which makes Martinez's job probably even more tenuous because uh, the new investor is not going to want to see uh, uh, this sort of uh, thing continue. I think that they uh, they really need to, to, to advance in this cup and make a run at winning it, maybe maybe win it to to relieve some of the pressure on Martinez. And if they do win the FA Cup, I think the uh, the tenth place finish or whatever is coming for them is excused. Mm-hmm. They're one club that needs that needs the FA Cup. They're one club that needs to. Uh, they're not going to get relegated. They're not going to make the Champions League. So this is a competition that's 
attainable and winnable and they need uh the final quarterfinal is going to take place on friday and it it really is a great draw for reading the only non-premier league team still in the competition they're going to be at home they're facing a crystal palace team that has been playing like a championship club for the last couple of months uh reading has been kind of a consistently mid-table club in the championship this year they've they've been a little bit higher and a little bit lower at, at times uh and while i only know of reading from some of the players that i recognize on their team and the scores that i read every weekend Kartik I wouldn't be surprised at all if Reading finds a way to get to Wembley through through a bad Palace team yeah Reading's a team that's consistently performing well in the FA Cup too this is I think the third time they've been in the quarterfinals in the last uh, five or six years so uh, they, they they've they've made this run before and they've gotten the best draw possible right at home to Palace mm-hmm. and uh, I think they probably are going to win yeah, some names that people might uh, recognize on Reading. Of course, American fans are going to recognize Danny Williams, who has had a very good year for Reading. Uh, I think a lot of people right now might think that he is arguably the U.S.'s best midfielder based on how he's played this year. But uh, people ro- recognize Hal Robinson Canu's name. They also recognize Anton Ferdinand, uh, Lucas Piazon, the prospect from Chelsea that's on loan there right now. They'll recognize his name as well as Matai Vidra, who has had a couple of very good games in the FA Cup this year. Uh, Kartik, let's shift our focus to the Premier League where uh, both teams that are competing for the title, or at least prominently competing for the title, are going to be active this weekend. Tottenham is going to be at Aston Villa on Sunday, whereas Leicester will be hosting Newcastle on Monday. Uh, these two look like two very lopsided comp- uh, games here. Uh, two title contenders going against two teams that, uh, the two bottom teams in the league. So it's really weird that we have that matchup at this point of the season. So let me phrase it like this. Which of these two teams do you think is more likely to drop points this weekend? Leicester at home to Newcastle or Tottenham visiting Aston Villa? Hmm. Um, I think it's probably, uh, and I mentioned Spurs have dropped points, that uh, both Leicester and and Manchester City dropped points to Aston Villa earlier in the season. But I think it's probably Leicester. The reason for that is because Newcastle are desperate and they might have a new manager. Now, if, if they still are in this lame duck, Stage with McLaren, I don't think that they're gonna they're gonna steal a point here. But it's possible if uh, McLaren is sacked, Benitez is coming in. Benitez, I'm sure, won't take the team that soon. But he, he, there's a there's an interim manager. There might be a rallying effect. I need to impress a new boss, and they get a draw. But uh, in all likelihood, both both of both uh, are gonna lose. But this is a very very uh, happening English football where where, t- where twenty plays two and nineteen plays one this late in the season. So. Uh, you know, if if one of them do slip up, Leicester or uh, or um, Spurs, it's probably going to be a big deal in the title race. Yeah, um, this Leicester game is on Monday. The Spurs game is on Sunday. On Saturday, another somewhat title contender is uh, playing. That's Manchester City, although they're ten points back, and even with their game in hand, that's a little distance to continue to talk about them as a title contender but they are playing at a team that is prominently featured in the relegation picture Norwich City is in the bottom three right now but they are going to be hosting this game Manchester City has Champions League to look forward to although uh, they don't have that quick turnaround like they had last time uh, where they played on Sunday before Champions League because that FA Cup scheduling they're playing the initial kickoff on Saturday and they're not traveling they're going to be hosting Dinimo Kiev in the coming week that being said Kartik similar question how likely is it that Norwich actually can scrape a point in this one it's pretty likely given manchester city's indifferent form and, and struggles away from home in these sorts of games uh, but manchester city went there in the third round of the fa cup and, and waxed so that was uh if that's any indicator 
that then this game is not going to be terribly competitive. City is also getting uh, fit, getting healthy, getting their depth back. So it's probably going to be a City victory, but but there is a there is a possibility for Norwich because keep in mind Manchester City have not won two matches in a row in the Premier League since the middle of October. <laughs> they uh, they could now, that's but that's because style. they're playing Aston Villa and Norwich back to back, so it's almost like putting an asterisk next to it. It's a scheduling <laughs> scheduling curve. Yeah, two two wins in the row against in the Premier League against teams that might be in the Championship next year. Uh, another game that kind of affects the bottom of the table, but not really, because uh, good runs from both Bournemouth and Swansea have pulled them away from the bottom of the table. The Cherries are going to be hosting Swans this week, and Bournemouth on 35 points is 11 points above the drop. Swansea off of two straight wins, they're eight points above the drop. Uh, probably the most inconsequential game of the weekend because both of those teams seem like they're both safe and not affecting any of the other races in the league. Another match that does seem to affect one of the races in the league, the race for those top seven spots, is Stoke hosting Southampton. Uh, we marvel at Stoke. We we kind of recognize that they're kind of in this transition year from one style to another, uh, yet they're in eighth place with 43 points, and they're only one point behind seventh place Liverpool. Southampton... I was very high on them a couple of weeks ago. They've had some poor results lately, getting only one point in their last three games. But they're only three points behind seventh point seventh place Liverpool. These two teams meet at the Britannia on Saturday, Kartik. And given the rate at these, which these two teams have had trouble scoring goals over the last couple of months, I'm not going to be surprised that the first goal wins this, or we just end up with a nil nil. Yeah, I think this will probably be a nil nil, honestly. Yeah, really not very much here. Uh, but I guess you never know with the talent that both of these teams have. They can break out of it at any time, as is both these teams have disappointed that talent level, at least going forward. Well, when we come back to you again, it's going to be Sunday. It's going to be myself, Nipun Chopra, and Lawrence McKenna talking to you about the 30th round of action in the Premier League, what action there is in there, as well as the quarterfinal matchups in the FA Cup. But until then, for everybody at the World Sock Top family of sites, I'm Richard Farley. Kartik? Enjoy our football. The World Soccer Talk podcast is a production of World Soccer Talk and is executive produced by Christopher Harris and produced by Richard Farley. You can get the podcast a number of different ways, including Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Audioboom, or you can go to worldsoccertalk.com to download the show directly. To get in touch with one of the hosts, you can reach out to them on Twitter. I'm Richard Farley. Kartik is KKFLA737. Lawrence is LOZCAST, LawsCast. And Nipun is Nipun Chopra7. Don't want to bother with Twitter? Go ahead and reach out via email. Richard at worldsoccertalk.com. <laughs>